Last week we started a series in the book of Esther called uh, Where is God? And a uh, fascinating book of the Bible, and, and um, especially when you kind of start examining, you know, what all is going on. Is this just, a, is this just like a soap opera? What are we reading here? Um, and there's, there, there are a lot of things, observations you can make as we even consider our own world that we're in today in life. Um, many times the question arises, especially when, when things just aren't going well, you ask the question, where is God? Where's God in all this? What's, what is going on? And, and um, you know, I think the last couple of years, you know, from really from when uh, COVID hit, and, you know, just a lot of confusion and just, you know, what, what, what is going on? And where is God in all of this? And, uh, you know, and we remind ourselves that God is still very much active and, uh, and uh, we may not even see it till we're looking back, till we have hindsight. Um, but, uh, but the book of Esther, God is not mentioned and, uh, in the entire book of, uh, of Esther. And it's uh, kind of interesting, yet we see God's fingerprints all over the book. And uh, so I want to kind of look at that as we consider our own lives and what we're going through in, in our own context. Uh, uh, Esther chapter 2, I want to have a word of prayer and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for, uh, for this day, this Lord's Day, that we can come and uh, worship you and get in your word. And Father, I ask that you would help us today uh, here in Sunday School and the main service. Would you encourage our hearts, help us uh, to, to walk closer with you, to trust you better, uh, and to, to really have hope in, uh, in the God of hope. Lord, we love you today. And I pray that you'd guide and direct in all things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> I want to title today's message. We're going to basically be in Esther 2. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but we'll kind of uh, look at some bits and pieces as we go through like I mentioned, I'm not going to do a typical verse-by-verse verse as we go through this, because a lot of it is just kind of narrative, and we'll kind of highlight some things. Many of you are familiar with the book of Esther. I encourage you, while we're going through this, read the book of Esther at least once. Go through it and familiarize yourself with what's going on in the story. Um, but I want to uh, call the message Hunter's Stew. You say, what? Hunter's Stew. Who knows what Hunter's Stew is? All right, I, I, was, I, was, I was looking up uh, some ideas because it's such a strange, you know, the, the, where I want to go this morning is it's, it's kind of a bunch of random characters, random circumstances, all kind of seemingly all kind of coming together. Well, what hunter's stew is, if uh, you have like a hunting cabin or whatnot, you, you get out there and you think, what are we going to have? And you just see what's in the cupboards and, and you try to mix it all together in a way that might make it edible. Edible, edible there's the word. And... Um, and, you know, you just kind of throw it together and hope it turns out well. Hunter's stew. Or you might do that at home. You know, there's just leftovers. And what can we do to just kind of bring it all together and make it, you know, <laughs> see if the, the kids won't throw too big of a, of a, of a, of a fit trying to, trying to eat it. But, um, but, you know, it's just throwing something together and hope the pot comes out well, you know. And, and uh, there have been times my wife has experimented just kind of throwing ingredients together. And there have been some really cool things that she's come up with. And I'm like, wow, that was pretty impressive. Just throwing these things together. But you know who the ultimate chef is when it comes to just throwing random ingredients together? The Lord. And, uh, and, and as he puts it all together, what he does with inferior ingredients, ingredients that don't seem to go together, it all comes together as though it was masterfully planned because it was. From our perspective, it looks like, well, that's random, this thing and this thing. And, you know, you start putting all these pieces together and, uh, and we step back and God says, well, this was my plan. This is what I'm doing. This is the sovereignty of God. And that's really what the book of Esther is. It's Hunter's stew. It's taken uh, uh, some, some, you know, uh, 
just weird, you know, different experiences, individuals, and, and even a lot, even wickedness. And he brings us all together uh, to, to preserve his people, to preserve his promises. And so when you look at individuals and the circumstances that make up this book, you, you begin to ask yourself, how could anything good come out of this? I mean, from the very beginning, we looked at last week, this party that the king throws, after a, a, a six-month party, by the way, a 180-day party, he throws another seven-day party to celebrate how well the party went. Uh, and, uh, and he's drunk with all his friends, and he invites his wife to come and dance before them. Uh, this was not a pure setting, uh, and uh, she doesn't want any part of it. So, uh, so in his rage and his drunken state and his counselors, and he took bad counsel, he, he basically banished his wife and set a new decree for all the women in the kingdom uh, as a lesson that, that they better mind their husbands and they better uh, listen up. And, uh, you know, just, just, just mistakes. And you start this book, you're like, this is a book of the Bible? By the way, one of the things that uh, I think shows us that the Bible is, in fact, the Word of God is, uh, is all the problems it exposes, all the, all the flaws with individuals and, and people. Uh, you know, it's an honest book. Uh, even the heroes of the Bible, even the, the, the best, the most spiritual people in the Bible, their problems uh, uh, still come to the surface. They're still sinners. I think about David, you know, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the greatest king that ever lived, had some problems, some moral failures. Think about uh, uh, Samson, the strongest man that ever lived, had some moral failures. Well, Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, moral failures. Um, I think about Lot. Uh, that one's an interesting one. You read the story of Lot in Genesis. Here's a wicked man in a wicked society, and what really seems like he wants nothing to do with God. Yet Peter refers to Lot as being a just man. <laughs> You're thinking, what? How? <laughs> Well, it's an honest book. And, and, and by the way, just because there's an accurate recording of, a, of, a, of something that takes place in the Bible does not mean everything that takes place in the Bible, God endorses. Uh, does that make sense, what I just said? It, uh, much of this is history, and God's honest with his history. All right. So this is not endorsing uh, putting away your wife because she's not uh, uh, dancing in front of you and your men. <laughs> you know, this is not endorsing... Uh, what we're going to look at uh, even this morning, this, this, this uh, kind of a wicked beauty pageant. Um, uh, didn't, uh, God's not endorsing multiple wives like David had. In fact, uh, David was in violation of Scripture when he did that. Um, but this is, uh, this is God's uh, uh, story. This is something that, and there's something for us to learn. The things written before time were written for our learning and admonition that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. The Bible tells us. So when we look at these old passages, we remind ourselves this is for us. We're to learn something here. We're supposed to get something out of this. And so God does a masterful job in taking all these ingredients and puts them in the pot of his sovereignty. And what comes out really is quite amazing when you, when you get to the end of the story. Last week we learned this king, uh, this king of the world, really. Uh, he had the title. Remember what uh, his title was? Anybody? King of Kings, that's what his title was. Um, uh, Ahasuerus, uh, the, the history records him as Xerxes. You might have heard of Xerxes, the king of Persia. That's who we're talking about. He was a proud man. He was a man that desired to conquer the whole world. He had 127 provinces under his care. And if you looked at a map and you looked at all these provinces, I mean, it was quite a, a, a region that he conquered. And there was really one group that he had not yet conquered, and that was Greece. 
And you may have read stories about the Persians and the Greece, uh, going against Greece. And, and uh, so he heads over there and he takes his, his, uh, his army and they head over there uh, uh, to go battle Greece and they lost. And so he comes back conquered, defeated, discouraged. And between chapter 1 of Esther and chapter 2, we have about a three-year period that takes place. So in chapter 2, Xerxes is coming home from this great defeat. And he comes back and he realized, uh, by the way, when you've gone off to war... When you've been separated from your family, uh, you just cannot wait to get back to your wife. You can't wait to see your kids. You can't wait uh, for those kinds of things. Well, he comes back to an empty palace. He comes back and his wife's gone. And he starts to remember he loved this wife. He, 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 and, and yet, because of the law of the Medes and Persians, per, Persians, he could not go back on the fact that he banished his wife that he took away the, king, the queenship from her and, 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 and kicked her out, basically. And so here we are in, uh, in verse number 1. Here's what it says in chapter 2. After these things, about a three-year period, uh, when the wrath of the king of uh, Ahasuerus was, uh, was appeased, he remembered Vashti. That was his wife. He, he remembered, he had fond memories of her. He loved her. And, and then it says, and what, what she had done, he remembered uh, how she refused him, and then what he decreed against her. This was a bad decision. Uh, this was, you know, he was now in a tough place. He could not go back on this because of the law. Uh, it, you know, um, he, he, was, he was in this very tough place, but as he's sitting here thinking, you know, man, what did I do? I messed up. Can you imagine the counselors that are around him? If he's discouraged and he's kind of bummed out, and you were one of the counselors that said, here's what you got to do, king. you got to just make an example out of her and get her out of here. Can you imagine how nervous they'd be? I mean, this is the king. What he says goes. Uh, uh, it doesn't matter about due process or anything. If he wants your head, he has your head. And now they're seeing this king in regret. So they've got to come up with a plan. Here's the plan, verse number two. Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, let there, be, uh, let there be fair young virgins sought for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan, the palace, to the house of the women, uh, unto the custody of, of uh, uh, Hegi, the, the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women, and let the, their things uh, for purification be given them. And verse 4, And let the maiden which pleaseth the king be queen instead of Vashti. Uh, and the thing pleased the king, and he did so. And so they came up with this idea. Uh, they, they said, let's have uh, a beauty pageant. Let's have, uh, let's have a contest, so to speak. Uh, um, uh, we'll call it, um, um, uh, what's, the, what's the one? Um, uh, like Miss USA, we're going to call it Miss Persia. Okay? And uh, we're going to call Donald Trump. He's going to organize this whole thing. And uh, we're going to have a big beauty pageant. And, uh, and in all the provinces, all the region, they go and they, uh, and they go and do this. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, set, records that there were over 400 women that were selected for this beauty pageant. And among these women, look at verse number 7. And he brought up Hadasha, uh, that is Esther, his uncle's uh, uh, daughter, that's, that, that's um, uh, Mordecai, talking about he raised Esther. For she had neither father nor mother, and that maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So here we're introduced to two characters. Mordecai, an older man, uh, raises his younger cousin. 
as a daughter. Verse 8. So it came to pass when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, and when um, uh, many maidens were gathered together into Shushan the palace, the custody of, 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 of Haggai, uh, that Esther was brought unto the king's house to the custody of Haggai, uh, keeper of women. And so she's brought into this. We now have Esther and Mordecai brought to the scene, and we're introduced to these characters. And, and it's interesting because it's just kind of some random characters. This, this huge thing, this, palace, this, this kingdom, 127 provinces, the fairest uh, in the land are gathered together, and right in the backyard of the king's palace in Shushan, uh, we have Esther. Just a nobody, a Jewish girl, an orphan, raised by her cousin. Her cousin, Mordecai, he's kind of a low-level government employee working for the, the king, and they're just kind of nobodies. And, uh, and they're introduced to this story. And now I just want to um, uh, bring up just a couple of uh, statements here uh, this morning as we kind of look at this passage. First statement I want to make is that man's, man regrets his choices, but God never regrets his. See, even the king, he could not control the outcome of his choices. He, he thought, you know, i got to save face in front of these men or, or, or even in front of the kingdom. And so he, he puts his wife away and, uh, and regrets the decision. He couldn't change the outcome. He couldn't fix that. And uh, the choices that man makes are sinful and selfish. Uh, just look at the Bible. Look, look, look throughout, uh, throughout all these stories. Many of these stories are given for our encouragement, our uh, help, if you would. Uh, how many times these choices, and especially when there's a bad circumstance that takes place, it was rooted in selfishness. Uh, think about this, uh, this beauty pageant that has taken place. Um, I'm just going <laughs> to... Uh, Call it, call it that, just for lack of a better term, but this, this beauty passion is taking place. What is the point of this? Is this for the service of the people? Is this to help the kingdom? No, it's selfish in nature. And uh, man's choices, the choices man makes are selfish and sinful. Even good people in the Bible make selfish choices. I think about David. I think about Abraham. Uh, lying about his wife. I think about, uh, you know, different, different characters. But the choices that people make are, are selfish and sinful. However, God's choices, the choices that God makes, are righteous and selfless. They're for the benefit of others. They're, they're right choices. And so we're going we're gonna to contrast some things. How does man respond? How does God respond? Um, man makes choices that he's going to regret. But God doesn't regret his choices. Why? Because God's choices are righteous and selfless. Next, man, uh, um, man tends to make irrational choices. It might make sense in the moment. It might, uh, it might kind of be a, a, an expedient, a quick fix. But, but, but in, in that moment, when it plays out, you realize this was an irrational choice. This was not, uh, you know, think of, again about him removing the queen and, and all these things. These are irrational. They're, they're, they're quick uh, things and they, they're going to they're going to turn out to be, uh, you know, when it's all played out, when it's all said and done, these were irrational things. However, God's choices are always rational. Now, God's choices may not seem that way in the moment. What do you mean? I lost my job. How is that rational? What do you mean? I, you know, this, uh, you know, I was in an accident. What do you mean? I got this this uh, medical diagnosis. How does how is this rational? Hold on, let it play out. Time and eternity will reveal God's wisdom. God's choices are rational. Here's God. 
right on schedule, right on time, making this hunter's stew, bringing together these players, these circumstances that don't seem to otherwise fit. Second statement, man wields power for himself, but God wields power for his glory and for man's good. Man wields power for himself, for that selfish end, for that selfish uh, 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 thing. And, and, and you'll even use others to accomplish that selfish desire. That's what power is about, right? It's about others coming to my beck and call. It's about, uh, and, and that's kind of how we look at it. However, God uses his power to ultimately bring glory to himself and to bring good to his people. Think about this story. If you know the end of the story, really what was this all about? It's about God preserving his people and preserving his his covenants, his promises. Consider how man is wielding power in this. The king, he signs the paperwork. Yeah, let's, uh, let's do this. Let's, let's have this beauty pageant. Is that good for others? Think about 400 young women taken from their homes. This was not, uh, and notice what it said, he sent officers in each of the regions to go and search out the fairest in the land. This was, not, uh, this was not an ad was put out. All right, who wants to be, uh, you know, uh, America's next, uh, or, or uh, Persia's next uh, star, you know? Uh, who wants to be uh, in this beauty pageant? It wasn't like that. It was, they sent out officers to go search them out. Can you imagine being a parent, and a guard shows up at your door? You have a beautiful daughter. And, um, and uh, they, they show up there, and they take your daughter. Now, remember, 127 provinces. Some of these taken far away. Maybe never saw the kid again. I don't know. And they're taken away for the pleasure of some wicked, drunken, lascivious king. To, 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 to find out who, who pleases the king the best and who, who could be the next queen. See, when man wields his power, people suffer. People become pawns. That's, by the way, one of the dangers of a government being too big. People become pawns and, and people suffer. Um, think about these, these poor women taken and, you know, how, how, how uh, just, just, just what kind of feelings you must go through at this time. But is that the Lord? Is that how God does things? God has a plan for everybody. Uh, uh, the, uh, the psalmist records how, how God, God knew us even in the womb as he, as he fitly uh, puts every part together. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And, and, uh, and from early on, God, God has a vision for us. I think of uh, uh, Jeremiah 1.5, how, how before he was even born, God had ordained him and had a plan for him. Uh, that's God, and he sees uh, the, the, every little moving part and, 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 uh, and, and sees individuals. I think about how God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and, and he wants the salvation of mankind. It's really for others. It's, it, that, 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 that's, that's God's whole purpose and what he had done. And God knows everything about every person and has a purpose there, and God looks at people differently. They're not how he can use them or, or how he can manipulate and twist things around, but, but man uses people for their own benefit. How can I, what can I get out of this? What can I get from this? God uses people for his glory and for man's good. God uses people to bless people. God uses uh, a range of circumstances to, to, to bring an expected end, to, 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 to bring all things together for good. Man regrets his choices, but God never regrets, regrets his choices. Man uses his power for his own selfish 
uh, end, but God uses his power for his glory and man's good. Third statement. Man is well known for his faithlessness to God. For his faithlessness to God. But God is well known for his faithfulness to man. But God is faithful, the Bible tells us. Will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able. God is faithful. Now, what does it mean that God is faithful? Uh, does that mean that God is faithful to do whatever we want him to do? The faithfulness of God means you can trust him. The faithfulness of God is that he's got a plan. The faithfulness of God is that uh, he's not going to let you down. He's not going to abandon you. He's not going to turn his back on you. He said he'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. That's the faithfulness of God. When we think about that, we let God be the definition first. And we ask ourselves, am I faithful then to God? Or do I exemplify uh, faithlessness or unfaithfulness to God? We see two characters emerge in this story that many times we view as heroes. If I were to ask you, who's the, who's the hero in the book of Esther? We'd say, well, first of all, Esther. And we'd be right. We think of that bold statement she says when she says, if I perish, I perish. Willing to risk her life to, to save her people. I think about Mordecai. Perfect, strategically placed there and, and, and put there to challenge Esther and, and to, to remind her that she it just might be that she is brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. But let's be careful to give credit to whom credit is due. The credit that's due is not necessarily these individuals. First and foremost, the credit that's due is to the Lord himself. He is the one that was faithful in this story. The faithfulness of God. Think about Mordecai. God used Mordecai in spite of some character qualities that Mordecai had. Mordecai, let's start with his name. Mordecai bore the name honoring a Babylonian god. And that, that, that tells me that Mordecai had, uh, uh, had become part of this society, if you would. And maybe even not him, but, but, but his parents named him that. Uh, uh, you know, whatever the story is that led to this point, uh, they were definitely a part of society, and, and uh, he, had, he had kind of uh, become, become one of them. He is now uh, a Persian. Secondly, he twice he disassociated himself from Judaism from who his people are. Hey, don't tell them that you're a Jew, he told Esther. Look at, look at verse number 10. Esther had not showed uh, her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. In other words, she did not reveal to anybody the fact that she was a Jew as uh, she was following her cousin's leadership in her life, saying, hey, don't tell anybody. How different that is from God, how he wants us to stand up for him, how he wants us to identify as his people. And uh, so we see him, we see his, his name shows he's a part of the society, uh, uh, taking on a Babylonian god. We see, we see he's uh, 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 not willing necessarily to come, out, come forward and take a stance and, yes, I am a Jew, I'm a believer of the Most High God. Um, and, and then he comes from a family of compromise. Look at verse number 5 uh, real quick. Um, 5 and 6. Uh, now in Shushan the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of uh, Je uh, Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. So we see, okay, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Jew. Uh, verse 6. Who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, uh, which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, carried away. So he, he had gone away in the Babylonian captivity. 
Now, what's interesting is after the Babylonian captivity, Israel, uh, Jews, had a chance, an opportunity to go back to, uh, to their home, go back to Jerusalem, go back to Israel, uh, to, the, to the area there. And his family, as well as the other Jews that are in this area, they did not go back. What's interesting about that is even in Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah warned that when the captivity was over to go back to God's country. Jeremiah 58.8, Jeremiah 51.6, Jeremiah 29.10, three different times then uh, Jeremiah had warned, when the Babylonian captivity is over, get back to God's land, get back to serving God, uh, go back. This was not just necessarily an option, but hey, for faithful Jews, this was God's plan. Go back. And these people, they decide to stay. No, we're comfortable where we're at. We, we kind of like this society. We kind of like what's going on here. Whatever the reasoning might be, we don't know all the details, but they chose to stay. He came from a family of compromise. And then the last thing I want to point out about Mordecai, that God used him in spite of these things, is he's living among compromising people. Just like his family stayed, these other people stayed. You know, in Esther, the book of Esther, we find no mention to the law of God. We find no mention to prayer, of prayer. It's implied. There's a a point where she talks about fasting, but they don't talk about prayer. They don't use the name of God. You don't see religious activity going on, and, and, uh, you know, God seems to be very far from these people. He's in a very compromised group, compromised area. Mordecai. He's not the best example of standing for God. Now, I think he's a good man. He raised his cousin. By the way, uh, I, I think it's noble for anybody to raise someone who's not your child. To step in and, and be that role and to, 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 to parent uh, some, something that wasn't necessarily part of the plan. I don't know what happened to Esther's parents, probably during one of the captivities or carrying away, or I don't know what happened. But, uh, but for whatever reason, she was orphaned, and, and her cousin stepped up. And that's noble. He, uh, he was, uh, uh, I think he was an honest man. At one point, uh, he overheard some, uh, some uh, plot against the king. What did he do? He turned them in to save this wicked king. He's really not a good king. He's proud. He's full of himself, this king. And yet, he does what's right. He raised Esther. He's concerned about uh, the role he plays in life. You know, and, and, ju- and, and God just kind of throws him into this hunter's stew. Not the best example. He's definitely not a Daniel. Think about Daniel. He put his life on the line several times to stand for the Lord. No, I'm not going to eat the king's meat and violate my conscience. No, I'm not going to uh, stop praying. You know the story, Daniel in the lion's den. By the way, this was a contemporary but it's someone that God used. Think about Esther. We love to talk about Queen Esther, who took a stand. Ever thought about what Esther really did? And God used her in spite of these things? Esther, when she was brought in, she ate prohibited food. She ate the king's meat. She, ate, she, she violated uh, uh, Old Testament law and, uh, and some of these things. Uh, she participated in a prohibited act. She went in and she slept with the king. Now, does that violate Jewish law? Absolutely. She was, she was immoral and, she, and uh, you know, she crossed some lines. Um, uh, she entered into a prohibited marriage. Is it lawful for a Jew to, to, to marry a non-believer? Uh, someone of a, a, a heathen, if you would? 
What's interesting is during this time, you have prophets, Ezra, Nehemiah, Malachi, they were all contemporaries of this time, and, and all of them preached against intermarriage with heathens. All of them preached against it. See, Esther was not this faithful Jew. She was not this uh, uh, epitome of what a godly young lady necessarily was. She did all this, all these things that the Bible prohibited, and now, in her society, you know, uh, I think about the society she was raised in. I think about uh, she was honoring her, her uh, adopted father, so to speak. And, and, uh, you, know, and, uh, and you know, she's, she's honest. She, she carries the report to the king about uh, this plot that was against him. And, and uh, you know, in this imperfect society, all these imperfect people, not entirely faithful people, not entirely trusting God, yet in all this, God was faithful. Even when people are not their best, God is bringing it all together and making this hunter stew. Putting in all the parts, all the pieces. Amidst this mess, God formulates a plan to fulfill His promise. But what a great God. You ever sat back and you think, Lord, how could you, how could you do anything with me? Um, I was talking with somebody uh, once. He's, he's walking with the Lord now and he's, he's in church, but uh, he was talking about this, uh, this time in his life that he had felt like he had gone just so far from God that he couldn't even imagine stepping foot in church. And it wasn't that he didn't want to come to God. He just, he just felt like God wanted nothing to do with him. He'd just gone so far. And, uh, and you think about all that. Hey, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. God has a plan. What a, what a great God. What a long-suffering, per- patient, merciful God. I think about some others that God used. Daniel was not willing to devi- defile himself with the king's meat. Daniel stood in a time when it would have cost him his life when they were taken uh, to Babylon. I think about Daniel's friend, the other three that are commonly known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were willing to take a stand and not bow down. They also didn't take the meat. And they didn't bow down to the idol. And They, were, they, they said no to the king, willing to die. And here's what they said. Uh, our God is able to deliver us, but if not, we're still not going to bow down. The confidence that God is faithful, and in His faithfulness, He's going to do it His way, even if that means I will be martyred. Talk about taking a stand. Mordecai and Esther, not not so much. These are unexpected heroes that we're reading about. It makes sense that God used Daniel. It makes sense that God used those others. It does not really make sense that God would use an Esther, that God would use a Mordecai. But He did, and, uh, and God has a big plan. Yes, this question, where is God? Where is God in all this? This doesn't, isn't making sense at this point. Well, he's right there. He's making some hunters stew. He's bringing in the players. He, he's, he's positioning some things. He's, he's taking people who are full of lust and making wicked decisions. And he says, I'm going to do something with that decision that was made. By the way, does God, is God the author of sin? Yes or no? No. Does sin disrupt God's plan? Yes or no? That's such an amazing thing about God and his sovereignty. It's something to wrestle with, isn't it, though? You think about, did God choose Judas to betray him? Or did God choose someone who would have betrayed him? <laughs> you see, you just asked the same question. No, I didn't. It's a little different. God definitely used the betrayal, didn't he? It was a part of his plan. But does that mean God preordained Judas to betray Jesus? 
it's kind of something to wrestle with. God does not, is not the author of sin. He doesn't tempt any man, the Bible says in James. Yet, he works all this together and he says, oh, you made some lustful and some decisions that, 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 that destroyed lives and, and all this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that. And, uh, and over here, I've got, I've got a willing servant. Their life's messed up, and they're in this wicked society, and they've compromised, and it's been forever since they prayed, been forever since they've worshipped, been forever since they've, they, they, they've followed the law that is for their people. And, and yet, uh, uh, I see some people that, are, that I can still use. And so he kind of starts putting all these things together and he starts stirring the pot, so to speak, and say, this is going to come out. You might look at it as it's in the, the early stages. You say, you're throwing in those ingredients? That doesn't make sense. Why would you put those ingredients in there? And, and well, let's see how this thing turns out. And, and what we're going to see, if you know the end of the book, you're going to see, wow, that was an amazing masterpiece. I mean, there are some twists and turns to where you're reading and you're like, oh man, this is getting, getting crazy. This is, a, this is a foot race, a matter of life and death. You know, is the message going to get there in time? And are the people going to die? Are they going to live? And I mean, it's a crazy book. But as it's kind of starting to unfold, you think, how in the world? What's God going to do with this? Well, God's right there putting all these things together for the good of his people and to bring glory to himself. It would be very easy to say, God, why don't you just let them get what's coming to them? After all, they refused to go back home. They refused to go to that beautiful city of God. They refused to go back home to worship in the temple of God, to rebuild that temple, to rebuild the walls, and to be a part of that. They refused when they had the chance to go home and, and be where the prophets are. By the way, the contemporary prophets, Nehemiah, Ezra, Malachi, where were they? They were in Jerusalem. See, these people aren't even where there are spiritual leaders for their good. How, how easy it would say to be if you and I looked at it and said, well, let it play out. God still has a remnant. He still had some people. Yet God so loved the world. And I think this is such a beautiful picture. Yes, they were Jews. Yes, they were his people. But I think, uh, I think uh, the parallel there is pretty amazing when you consider people all around the world that God wants to see saved. When you, when you consider that God is not slack concerning his promises of judgment, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I will say this, can you imagine all those Jews who came so close to death, how, how it must have caused them to start reconsidering their God, reconsidering some things? Yesterday was 9-11, <clears throat> September 11th, and... Uh, for all of you that are older than probably 30, uh, it takes us back to where we were that day. And uh, the days following, you know, it's amazing how America kind of experienced a small revival. Churches filled up, people looking for answers, wondering, maybe asking the same questions in the book of, you know, that as we look at the book of Esther, where is God? You know, it's amazing how when you've been spared or when some kind of great injustice takes place or whatnot, we start thinking about spiritual things. You look at this and say, wow, God was really doing something with the concern for all these backslidden, wayward Jews. And I don't think that's a stretch to call them that. I really don't, when you consider where they're at. Man, last statement, man creates insufficient solutions for man's problems. In chapter number two, he, he banishes his wife. What was the solution? Let's have this beauty pageant. 
That, that's an insufficient solution for his problem that he created, right? He's going to go through, and then of these 400, I don't know exactly what the selection process was, but, but let me just say this was not a pure thing. This was not a godly thing. Uh, this, was a, uh, uh, this, was, this was a wicked reality show. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of, you know, when we put it in our, our context today, that's kind of what it would have been. And, and you know, what a, what a crazy solution that he had for a problem that he made. Man creates insufficient solutions for man's problems. Man creates insufficient solutions for problems that are past. God creates sufficient solutions for future problems. We looked at that a little bit last week. God in his understanding and God in his foreknowledge, he sees the problem down the way and he begins orchestrating things, already making, bringing together the solution to the problem. Boy, I can tell you story after story on how God had to be at play way in advance to be the answer to the problem that was taking place. I remember one time, uh, finances were very tight. We, uh, uh, my wife and I, we were, we were having to pray in <laughs> everything. Um, we were, um, we were, I was pastoring a very struggling church plant. Things were going pretty well, and then uh, uh, the recession hit, hit hard in California, and and people are moving out of town. I was living in a little resort community. They're the ones that get hit first because, you know, who's taking vacations? Who's, you know, doing these things? So people are moving out of town, and, and, uh, and we're, we're, we're trusting God. We're living by faith for our personal finances. We're living by faith for the church's finances. And, uh, and I remember one month, we had everything taken care of except about $500 for our rent. We were short. And we're like, man, what are we going to do? We, you know, we're, here we are at the end. We have... We got food, praise the Lord. We have, you know, you know those things, but uh, what are we going to do here? And um, uh, a letter came in the mailbox, and uh, it was postmarked in Ohio. And I don't know anybody in Ohio. And, uh, and the le- there's a little note in there, and it said, uh, it said, you don't know us, but God has put you on our heart. And uh, in there was five $100 bills. And it's like, well, God had to do that ahead of time. Right? I hear stories from missionaries who had a great need, and, and there was a timing issue. God, God saw ahead the problem and began formulating, God has sufficient solutions for man's past problems. That's the marvelous thing about God. He already knows about the problem you're going to face. He already knows what is ahead, and, and God orchestrates these things. We haven't even come to the problem in the book yet. Well, I thought the problem was we have an immoral king. I thought the problem was he got rid of his wife. No, these aren't the pro- that's not the problem yet. There is one main problem that's going to arise in the book of Esther, and it is a life and death problem. And if you've not read it yet, I'm not going to, uh, spoiler alert, right? Go home and read the book of Esther this week, and we'll continue. But, uh, uh, but God starts putting all the pieces in place at the right time. And, and that, that powerful statement that Mordecai had made to Esther, that it could be that she is brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. What is that? That is God's solution to a future problem, to, to a problem that really wasn't even on the radar. When, when this beauty pageant was going on, I, I, I guarantee you Esther was not sitting there thinking, God's going to use me to save my people. In fact, she didn't even let anybody know she was a Jew. She wasn't identifying with them. She was not making it known. That's the marvelous thing about God. Before the dilemma comes, God creates a solution. 
Chapter 2 is really all about Hunter Stew. We're bringing in all these characters. We're bringing in all these things that seem to be non-related and, uh, and, and uh, you know, imperfect and people making bad decisions and poor solutions and mediocre people compromising Jews, lustful kings, all into this one big pot. And somehow God takes all of those things and he's going to formulate a masterpiece. You say, what's God doing? He's doing something that we just can't see. You know, I think about the biggest problem that you and I have. The biggest problem that you and I have faced, and that is our sin problem. And how God in His infinite wisdom and His plan and His sovereignty, He said, I'm going to put together a solution for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The Bible says that, 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 that Jesus being that Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, before you were ever born, God already had a plan. And then before you were ever made aware of the problem, God already had the answer. It's amazing when we come to that awareness that we are sinners and need a Savior, that we're deserving of God's judgment, God's wrath. God already took care of it in flesh 2,000 years ago and in eternity before the foundations of the world. God had a plan. And so when we look at it that way and we say, well, if I can trust God with my eternity, if he saved me before I even knew there was a problem, I think he can handle these other things that come my way. I think he can handle some of these other problems that I'm facing and dealing with. And, and, uh, and it all just might be a part of his hunter stew. You say, well, this is a silly title to keep coming back to that. That's what God does. You know, the beautiful thing about church is uh, it's... It's an area in, in society that brings people in a, in a society or a group together that would not normally ever come together. Now, you know, I'm thankful for our church, and in a smaller setting, you might think that doesn't really make any sense. But, uh, but think about it. Several of us would not even know each other if it was not for church. And our best friends go to a church. And, uh, you know, one of the great uh, examples I ran into is a church planter in Washington, D.C., and uh, he's been there for several years now. And, uh, and one of their church services, uh, they had a homeless man sitting next to the head of NASA in the same service. Where else in society are you going to see something like that? It's a great neutralizer. It's a great, you know, it brings together nationalities and classes and ages and all these things. And, and uh, what is that? It's, it's God's hunter's stew. And it's beautiful. It's amazing. It's, uh, it's, as Paul calls, this mystery. But it's awesome. It's God's plan. And it's through that, through the local church, and through, through God's uh, plan for this day that we're in, uh, the, the, the blessings that come about from that, and uh, the, the problem-solving, and the helps, and the things that we are as we minister as a body, and it's just an amazing thing to consider. But God's doing a work, and I'm looking forward to, uh, to, to, to the rest of this. Just some lessons that we're picking up from the book of Esther, as we consider, there's a problem coming down the pike. And if you've not read the book of Esther, let me just kind of give you the, the, the spoiler here. Um, there's going to be a great offense that's going to lead to a decree that is signed with the king's signet that on a certain day of a certain month, all the Jews in the 127 provinces will be killed. And God puts Esther there to intervene. And it's an amazing story how it all unfolds and uh, a very weighty matter. And so if, that, if you've not read it, if that piqued your interest, go read the book of Esther so you'll know exactly what we're talking about next week, and we'll continue. But I appreciate you folks.
and thankful for God's goodness and for God having a plan. And uh, before we even know that there is a plan, before we even know there's a problem, God's already working it out. And I appreciate that about our wonderful God. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for, for